0: Christianity works for some people. This is a common assessment. And if you are a regular here at Sunrise, and it has been made about you who are a churchgoer. Indeed, you may have even made this statement. He or she, you know, they're, they're the kind of person that needs to believe. You know, they, have the, they just have that inner strength to choose giving in exchange for taking. But Friends, that falls far short. Far, far short of the good news that Jesus offers us. In fact, as Jesus nears and finally experiences the cross, we begin to see more clearly that Jesus offers both. So we get to experience as Christians what the world cannot conceive. They say you can't have your cake and eat it too. As a Christian, you can. One of my heroes, Martin Luther, famously called this possibility the great, or more properly, he called it the wonderful exchange. The great exchange or wonderful exchange, wherein he said, by a wonderful exchange on the cross, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And righteousness is no longer Christ on the cross, but ours. What an exchange, Right? What a scandalous trade. Life in Christ isn't uh, this will-powered exercise in either-or. It's a both-and that we see stand out more and more as Christ approaches his cross. So we begin with this misconception this morning about following Jesus, that each moment following Jesus presents a decision to just sacrificially give much more than we selfishly take. I want you to look on your bulletin. On your bulletin this morning, which you should have gotten at the door, you're going to see a number of common relationships represented. Get out that bulletin. You're going to need it this morning. Uh, You'll see a number of relationships here. While each relationship, you know, is conceived as a kind of two-way street, some relationships, you know that you're more giver than taker, and other relationships, you're more taker than giver. So I want you... I want you to take a moment, find a pen nearby. You can find them in these chair pockets if you need them, along with Bibles, by the way. And I want you to assign a percentage in each relationship. So we have here relationships like spouse, percentage give, percentage take. Kids, or if you don't have kids, your extended family maybe, percentage give, percentage, your closest co-worker, your nearby neighbor, the island itself, the church, God, or the person sitting next to you, who you came with this morning. You might want to cover up for that one. But percentage give, percentage take. Take a minute. Maybe we'll play, play a little music here. And uh, assign a percentage in each relationship to your giving and your taking. Okay. Hopefully that gave you enough time to do some serious contemplation in your life. Um, what would be the ideal balance in each of these relationships? Hopefully you're honest about what the percentage really is. What would be that deal balance? My guess would be for some relationships it might be appropriately out of balance. Like for you as a parent and your kids, it shouldn't be 50-50, right? It should be, or otherwise you're living vicariously through your children. You know, maybe 70, 30, 80, 20. But for most relationships, the idea would likely be, especially with a spouse or a good friend with the church, maybe even with God, 50-50. But as we'll see this morning, in one woman's encounter with Jesus, an abundant life in Christ is actually not 50-50, it's 100-100, 100% 100 and 100%. It's possible not only in our relationship with God, but because of what God has done through the cross, it's possible even in our relationships with one another. As we grow in grace, it's increasingly possible in every relationship we have. Turn with me. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, where we find the first person in recorded history who so trusts Jesus, she gives to him her 100%. My question is, can you say the same? Perhaps you've tried and failed, and thankfully, through Jesus, there is full forgiveness. So you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and try again. But do you recognize you have trusted Jesus with part, but not with all? With some, but not your most precious? With a little, but not with 100%? If so, I invite you into this story to discover how this woman trusted Jesus with all, with her most precious, with 100%, and didn't burn out. It's a story that Jesus said would be remembered wherever the gospel is told. And it will be told this morning. So let's read together. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, for she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. When they heard it, they were glad. They promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. This is God's word. Now, there are three characters, or three groups of characters, who's up. Uh, give or take relationship with Jesus. I really want us to explore this morning. We have priests scribes, we have Judas and a small crew of fellow disciples, and finally we have Mary, the sister of Martha, Lazarus and likely the daughter of who we see here Simon the leper, an older man by this point. We find that out that she is this very Mary from the Apostle John's point of view the same incident. So I'm going to read that just briefly for us. You can turn there with you if, you if you want. It's John chapter 12. We're going to read verse 1 through 6. Before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Again, this is the same incident. That's where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served, not surprisingly. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him. He hadn't yet. He was about to. Said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to whatever was put into it. What's interesting as we take this whole incident all the details of it into account immediately for us is that those who wish to give 100% to Jesus, those of us who want to give 100% for Jesus to our neighbor to show the love of Jesus, what's interesting is that those who initially seem to take the most from Jesus actually take the least. So let's start with takers only. The stealthily hostile here the priests and the scribes, the religious leaders. Their hostility towards Jesus can be traced to a a surprisingly modern and contemporary question, which is, how might God legitimize the life I already lead? How might God, rubber stamp, approve the life I already lead? because that's what God's for. He's the divine yes man. Soon after Jesus' baptism, a teaching, and a few healings, Mark says that people were coming to him from every quarter, from all over the lands, into this countryside. It includes the scribes who came from the religious center of Jerusalem down to the back country of Capernaum to witness Jesus heal a paralyzed man. And hear him say, in the context of healing this man, that he can forgive sins, even this man's sin, which surprises them. And if it's true, and if people follow him, it totally delegitimizes their whole system of religion, their whole please God through rule following religion, through which they exercise influence and through which they profit so much. Totally gets it out the door, so you can see why they'd be worried. About this Jesus. Jesus then starts hanging out with low-lives, tax collectors, and so-called sinners. So, for a moment, they actually, whew, he's hanging out with these folks. He's a total wacko. We don't have anything to worry about. We can leave. Look at the kind of people he hangs out with. He's going to totally ruin and scandalize his ministry. So, they do leave, they walk away until we see in Mark chapter 3. That the crowds become so great that Jesus is actually worried about them crushing him. And so, guess, what, guess who shows up next? The scribes. And Mark says, literally, they come down from Jerusalem. Why? Because the crowds have showed up again. He's gotten more popular. They don't want their ministry, their life to be delegitimized. This goes on until Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. and basically says that this temple worship isn't working. It doesn't please God, nor does it change you, the worshiper. So we're going to get rid of this temple, he says, through both actions and through words, because the presence of God is right in front of you, in this person. It's in me. And that just totally throws them off the rail, right? Because the temple, that's their home office. It's their center of operations. The temple is their cash cow. It's everything for them. They test him just a few more times to make sure that he won't fit into their worship and their life. And when Jesus won't rubber stamp their worship and their life that they already live, they're determined to take his life. Because when a God doesn't legitimize your life, you want to kill him. You get hostile, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeing how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, says in verse 2. What do they really take from Jesus, though? They're only takers, by the way. They don't ever give. Certainly, they give no ground to Jesus. Ultimately, what they take from Jesus is sticks and stones, really. Remember that old grade school adage sticks and stones may break my bones. Remember this? Yeah. They break Jesus. They do break Jesus by hanging him from two sticks and by rolling a giant stone in front of his body. But he had explicitly told his disciples three times that his physical life would be taken by these very people. He even insists in this story that his burial is about to happen. In other words, this doesn't surprise Jesus. What have they really taken from him? In this moment, it seems like they've given no ground but taken everything from Jesus, but we know the end of the story. How can you arrest and try to kill God? It's almost foolish, right? God, I'm going to arrest and kill you. What what is that? It's it's, It's ridiculous. It's like me saying I'm going to restrain Craig Morgan, Craig or his brother Wayne, from walking and exiting out those doors today. All right? Yeah, I might get, you know... A couple elbows in, I might even bruise a heel. But he's walking out those doors. They might bruise a heel. Satan tries to bruise Jesus' heel. But God crushes him. He walks out of that cave, out of that tomb. By the way, it's no different today when it comes to taking from God. We're given this life to live. And we live it. And when God doesn't legitimize our life the way we're living it, even though he's given it to us, people still get hostile. They set in a long-term hostility to Jesus. Few are openly hostile, but like the scribes and Pharisees, they're stealthily hostile. They wait till the right moment, maybe in a small group, to say, oh, you're not one of those religious fanatics, though, are you? You're not one of those fundamentalists, are you? By which they mean you live your life according to this. Remember, friends, in those moments that such people cannot take from Jesus or your witnesses anything of real potency. Still, at most, it's only sticks and stones. In fact, as you respond lovingly to them, Jesus' resurrection life shines all the more powerfully through you. That indestructible life shines more powerfully through you. Now, the second give or take relationship we see in this story is a little give. And a little take. People who use Jesus a little. People who are moderate. Judas and crew. I say Judas and crew because John, Mark, and Matthew each give us a little different angle as to who is so upset by this woman's extravagant gift that could have been used for the poor. John tells us it's Judas alone, as we read. He's the only one who says it. Mark says that it's some disciples, as we read here, too. Matthew says it's the disciples as a collective group. The simplest explanation is that Judas mumbled it. The disciples audibly agreed and snorted amongst themselves, and the rest were just wondering it, as Matthew reports. Let's focus first on Judas. He definitely gave a little. We don't often see that about Judas. Consider, for example, he was one of a pair with authority sent out by Jesus to cast out demons, to preach about repentance so you'll see Jesus and that he's the Savior, to lay hands on people and heal them. He's one of those people. That's more than many of us have ever done in a lifetime. Jesus, or sorry, Judas gives. And he took, really, but a little. We think of Judas as this, such an awful person. And no doubt his decision has awful circumstances. But in reality, he took but a little from Jesus. He dips into Jesus' travel wallet. It may not have been a little bit of money either. We're told, in fact, uh, by Luke, in Luke chapter 8, that a group of women, one of whom was one of Herod's sort of uh, household managers, basically, she was very wealthy, they've come along with Jesus and the disciples to help support them. They're funding the trip, in other words. However, his attitude changes. He gives, but his attitude changes as he witnesses Jesus praise a widow for giving God everything. And probably the day after here, praises a woman who gives God everything. And he sees what's coming, that Jesus can't be trusted as a mutual fund. Nevertheless, he makes one last attempt to use Jesus for money, doesn't he here? As we see In verses 10 and 11. For what Matthew tells us is 30 pieces of silver. That's a sufficient, Deuteronomy tells us in the Old Testament, to buy a slave for a person. In other words, he sells Jesus for a slave. For such earthly riches, Jesus exchanges a lifetime. A lifetime and eternity, what the Apostle Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the immeasurable riches of kindness we have in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. It seems absurd that he would exchange this for 30 pieces of silver, for a little pocket money along the way. No one follows Jesus for, for money. For, no one follows Jesus for the Fortune 500 person that he is, which he's not. Yet, Judas took from Jesus money. He used Jesus for monetary gain. And it's so absurd, isn't it? Who would use Jesus for money today? Oh yeah, there are entire actually messages and ministries built around this. So dangerous to profit from Jesus that this is the reason why we should seek Jesus. How sad to go the way of Judas. The irony is, actually, that those who seek Jesus for money aren't greedy enough. They seek and settle for too little. They settle for too little. Jesus has so much more to offer. We have Judas. gives a little, takes a little to his destruction. Then we have the crew of disciples who audibly look down upon this woman's gift as immoderate, as wasteful. They literally, it says here, they, they snort at her. It, it's that kind it's the kind of response that you have to be around and actually experience, the kind of emotional, audible response that makes a person cower. Which is why Jesus says don't trouble her because she is so troubled. She's been a fool for Jesus. And look how they treated her. Which also says something, by the way, how they still view Jesus, not worthy of a rare perfume costing about a year's salary. Jesus sells Jesus for approximately four months' wages. The disciple says, no, Jesus, you're worth more, but definitely under a year's salary still. They don't quite see Jesus' great worth. In Mark chapter 10, Peter's going to remind Jesus that they've left everything to follow him. Man, Jesus He promises that those who will do so will receive a hundred times as much now and in the age to come, eternal life, immeasurable riches. How patient is Jesus Because he knows. He said this to them while knowing, yet you'll look down on this woman for giving 100%, not 60. And you'll show your 60% when it comes to following me at my trial and my passion and my crucifixion. You'll still draw a line. Mary does not. The disciples can't give All. I would argue because they haven't yet taken all like Mary does. Unlike Mary, they don't yet understand and trust Jesus' indestructible life and inexhaustible power that he has to give. They're going to. And it's going to release a force like the world has never seen in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But it's something right now that only Mary seems to grasp. They take only some life from Jesus and thus give only some until they get sleepy and fall asleep in a garden. Enough to start to to journey with Jesus for a few years, but not enough to be there with him at his most trying moment on the cross. All but one desert him. And yet, as I read this story this week, guys, I wanted so badly to identify with Mary. Man, I, you know, give a hundred percent. Of who I am. And yet the persons I identified most was this little crew of disciples. Not quite Judas. Although it's possible. As a pastor, I, I get a salary from the church. It's true. And it's, it's, it's tempting for me. I have to watch my heart. That I'm never doing this for a check that comes. But for me, just as convicting to realize I'm like the disciples here, snorting at people like Mary. After I give her a break from the boys or go a little bit out of my way to help her, my attitude towards Katie, who's the most giving person towards me I know, sometimes causes her to have to say, Ryan, I feel like now you want me to pay you back. You've done this for me, now you want me to pay you back. Why? Because I get enough from Jesus to give about 50%. And I need some verbal affirmation from her. I need some encouragement, some affection from her, some payback from her. And I realize, 50%. (laughs) Times my boys have had to say to me, Dad, give us your full attention. In other words, 100% of your attention because I'm giving half my time, sometimes to them, playing with him, reading to them, being with them. the other quarter of the time to emails and text messages, maybe another quarter, to thinking what I'm going to say to person, someone I need to counsel who's not even with me at the time. I'm with my children. I grab a little time with Jesus in the morning, say goodbye, Jesus, such that I have 100% for my first coffee with someone who may be struggling. By my second appointment, I might be able to give 60%. By my third meeting, I'm looking to you for encouragement. I'm looking to you to fill me back up. Please <laughs> give to me, affirm me. Man, I trust Jesus enough to fill me up and get me started. But I ignore so many of His overtures during the day, Him trying to give Himself to me in so many different ways. It says that I'm forced to pace myself, right? Give a little here, give a little there. I gotta last, after all. It says that I have to end up regulating my attention my giving, even my love towards others. So it's no surprise that I prefer people show well-regulated wisdom instead of unbridled acts of mercy like Mary does here, right? Let's talk about what makes her act then unique. 100% give and 100% take. Fools for Jesus like Mary. Fools for Jesus. What does Mary show here that she understands about Jesus? Well, we, we know that Mary, from God's Word, understands that he is king. He is her king. She recognizes in her most valuable possession a gift fit for a king. Oil, nard, an expensive fragrant oil from the root of an Indian herb of the same name. It may have been a dowry. In other words, all she had to give would she one day marry someone. We don't know if it is. It was at least her most precious inherited possession for a woman who likely couldn't work in that day and age because of her gender. This is what she had of greatest value passed down to her sentimentally and valuably. Unlike Palm Sunday when all left Jesus by the end of the parade, her act, her act is really the anointing of the true king of Israel, God's people. Not the palm so much when people show a little love for Jesus but leave. But a jar of oil to anoint a king. She understands that much. She also understands that his time is short. Admittedly, it's probably hazy for Mary that she understands this. But that's why Jesus is gently correcting her when he says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body for burial." She understands enough to understand this is the end for Jesus, which is why she doesn't slowly pour out the perfume, right? If you're going to give something to someone like oil, like you know, like you're grinding pepper for someone, what do you say to people? Tell me when, right? She could easily say to Jesus, "Okay, I'm going to pour this. Just tell me when. That's enough." No, she knows Jesus' end is near. My time with him is drawing nigh. Psh! Crashes. Gives it all to him all of it unrestrained she understands this time is short she seems to get what no one else seems to he's an eternal king who dies for people on purpose how does she arrive at this point by taking the most from jesus she takes the most from jesus we need to see this in, in luke 10 is the first time we observe her interact with jesus Though she and Lazarus and Mary may have known him prior to this time, Jesus is coming through town and he knocks on the door where his sister Martha welcomes him. And she immediately gets busy preparing a meal, sweeping. Meanwhile, distracted with much serving. Luke tells us, while Mary, quote, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. You you can imagine, she's just there, cross-legged, in front of Jesus. Totally sincere, absorbing every word. There's a tendency for some people to say, well, that's because Martha had a more servant like personality. She just loved to serve, maybe it was even her gifting, while Mary was more the contemplative type. She just loved to sit and to listen. We're given no indication of this. In fact, Jesus stresses to Martha that it is her choice. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Mary's willing to look foolish by breaking into the living room area where only men were permitted with visitors. She doesn't care. She's going to get something that can't be taken from her. She sits at Jesus' feet, greedily gobbles up every morsel of Jesus' teaching. There she would learn no doubt about Jesus' kingdom come, the riches of life forever, and free forgiveness Martha's service had limits because she had yet to receive inexhaustible life from Jesus. Mary received a portion of life that could never be taken. So ironically, it's Mary who walks away with the inexhaustible power to serve and to give. Well, Martha will no doubt burn out what she does in that story. She complains, doesn't she? Jesus, look at what about my sister? Mary walks away with that inexhaustible power to serve and to give such that we see in John chapter 11 when Jesus learns that Lazarus, his good friend Lazarus is ill, and he goes to Lazarus with some delay. Mary can remain seated, waiting patiently for Jesus to arrive while she serves and mourns with her guests. During this encounter with Jesus, though, when when she goes out to him, when he asks for her, she has given up her most precious possession, her dear brother Lazarus. So she has experience with giving up precious possessions. She's given her brother to death. Do you see that? Only to watch Jesus rise her brother from death, to bring her brother back from the dead. How did she arrive at the point she'd give 100%? She'd been convinced by his teaching, and she personally experienced Jesus' power. To raise her most precious possession from death. So she has no fear of giving it up again. She takes the good news that that Jesus will breathe his indestructible and inexhaustible life into dead and exhausted things. That's what Jesus does. Breathes life into things that are dead. Gives inexhaustible power into things and people that are exhausted. He proved it by raising himself from death. But in a nutshell this morning, remember nothing else, remember this. Through the cross, the biggest takers become the biggest givers. You hear that? The biggest takers become the biggest givers. It's so paradoxical. It so runs counter to everything we've thought, everything we've maybe even heard about Christianity. But it's because the biggest givers can keep going back for more. Jesus gives his life that those who trust him might have forever an inexhaustible life. What a wonderful exchange we have. Today, it's no longer gold nor oil, you know, but, but water in today's day and age is probably our most precious possession. Um, I was reading a report that's talked about how most of the world, A, lives dehydrated, but also by 2030, if we keep going with a lack of clean water, we're going to have enough to supply agriculture, most industries, expanding cities, and they're projected to, to, to spark a geopolitical conflict that we've never seen. Widespread disease that would make Ebola seem like a head cold in comparison. Water is necessary for life. To give life and sustain one's own. So Jesus appeals to it to describe what he offers in himself. To a different woman in John 4, Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Inexhaustible. John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow flow rivers of living water. Inexhaustible, inputting water that's meant to go out to others by the Holy Spirit. My friend Mike, he grew up next to a lake. And his dad had this great lesson for him based on life growing up. He said, you know, some, our, our, our lake has an inflow and an outflow. And an outflow in a lake with no inflow, tr- the lake dries up, right? All the water rushes out of it. And that happened to our lake, you remember this lesson, he said that happened to our lake a year ago and all the fish died. But he said equally, if you have all inflow into a lake and no outflow, The lake floods. It oversaturates such that the fish die. And he said this. He said, either way, the fish die. You need to have an outlet to which you give yourself to others. and You need to keep going back to Jesus for what only He can give. An outflow and an inflow. Both are necessary to last in loving Jesus 100%. So, 100% give. Does that mean we're supposed to empty ourselves of our bank account, for instance, 100%? <laughs> or give all of your time to serve the poor? Or share all of your home? Whenever, whenever, with whomever? Is that what that means for our lives today? I don't think so. Jesus' inexhaustible, indestructible life does, though, have two consequences, for, I think, for giving of ourselves. Number one, it means an occasional extravagant gift that resembles to some immoderate wastefulness. It means occasionally saying, I'm just going to give something radical that people are going to say, oh my gosh, what are you, what are you doing? Don't, don't do that. Such that people might say sometimes, even of, of the elders, maybe well, you gave in that case, but not in this case. Or they say of you, why are you giving all your time there and you're exhausted? Don't, don't. you know, balance, balance. But every once in a while, that just pure, unfiltered, unrestrained act to express love for Jesus. 100%. Secondly, it means when you do commit to give to someone, give 100% while there, trusting that Jesus will faithfully fill you again full. He will. When you do commit giving a tithe to the church, or over, over and above, in a tithe to the poor, wholeheartedly give, it, with, not begrudgingly, as a cheerful giver. That's what Paul means. 100%, I'm in this. Because you trust that Jesus will replenish you. When you spend time with someone who's not your first pres- preference, especially the poor, but also those who are poor in social skills. Give 100% of your love and attention. Set an alarm if you have to, so you know when you've got to get back to work or to your family. But give yourself fully while you're there. Be 100% there for your kids. Leave behind your smartphone. Turn off your television. Why? Because you trust Jesus will fill you again full. 100% take. What does that mean in our modern lives? I don't think it necessarily means adding another quiet, more time to your quiet time or another discipline to your life, although it might. It's a new attitude of expectancy that throughout each day, Jesus is trying to offer himself to me and say, Take, eat. Here I am for you to take. Jesus is offering to me morsels of an indestructible, inexhaustible life. And saying, this is 100% for you to take. And maybe we just need to say that to ourselves more. When Jesus is giving us a gift of Himself to sustain us, this is 100% for me to take from Jesus. I'll give you a simple example for me. I just worked about four or five hours just pouring myself over this passage and some commentaries, back and forth in prayer, thinking, and I was just spent. I go over to the local Quiznos over here, okay? Walk in there. I'm thinking, man, after I eat, I just want to like just lay down. I just want to kind of give up, you know, turn, turn things on autopilot for about two hours. I heard Jesus just kind of whisper to me by the Spirit, you know, no, here is this peppercorn steak sandwich for you to take. Take, eat. This is my gift for you. This is the fuel I'm going to give you. It's enough. I'm enough. What I give you is enough. There's so many examples like that throughout each day where Jesus is trying to give himself to us through gifts, through an encouraging word that sometimes we just say, oh, no, no, no. That can't be me. No, that's 100% for you. That's 100% for you. That nap you take on Sunday afternoon, take it 100% if you're going to take it. That moment your kid does something just like hilarious you can't believe they just said that, 100% to encourage you. Every morning you wake up, God gives you food to eat, the teaching of Jesus to sit at his feet, 100% for you to take. Fellowship with other people who want to give you a handshake or a hug, that's 100% for you. Guys, we have to receive that if we expect to give 100%. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust that we can give our all like this woman did. This woman may not have given. We don't know Mary gave Jesus the deed to her house. She just gave Mary, or sorry, gave Jesus to you what was most precious at that time, 100% or most precious possession. God, sometimes you call us to give radically like that of ourselves. And when you do call us to, help us do so. Help us do so, trusting you'll fill us full again, 100%. And other times when we're just giving of ourselves in a moment to someone else, Help us give 100% of patience, 100% self-control, 100% tenderness, 100% attention, 100% love to show the indestructible inexhaustible life of Jesus. That others might see it and see how we trust you to fill us full again. We ask this all Jesus in your name. Amen.